Kurt, are you all ready? Yep. Ellie, you set? Yep. All right. Welcome to the July mid-month meeting of the Lawrence-Douglas County Metropolitan Planning Commission. It's a hybrid meeting. Ellie, would you walk us through the rules of the meeting? Yep. Uh, I'm Ellie Mullins, planner, uh, and I will be helping to facilitate the Zoom video portion of the meeting. I'll work alongside the vice chair, um, or I guess the chair today, um, to facilitate the meeting proceedings. I have a few housekeeping items for this hybrid meeting. Uh, the meeting is being recorded and broadcast on the city's YouTube channel and channel cable, er, cable channel 25. Please remember to mute yourself during the meeting when you're not speaking. The chat function for this public meeting is disabled. All chats will go directly to me. Unless you are participating during the meeting, please turn your video off. This allows the active video participants to be seen on screen. You'll still be able to hear the meeting. When you are participating, please turn your video on. If you have any trouble, you can send a chat to me. The city reserves the right to mute people or turn individual videos off to minimize distractions during the meeting. And now I'll turn the meeting back over to the chair. Thank you so much. Um, this is Gary Rexrode. I'm, uh, I'm sitting in for Prasant Duvar, who's out on a uh, great vacation. Um, he's joined us via Zoom, but just asked me because of his uh, remote nature that uh, I open and close the meeting today. So happy to do that. <clears throat> um, Today we have um, a primary topic um, where we've invited uh, Mr. Rob Richardson um, to uh, join us. Uh, Mr. Richardson is, uh, uh, in this context, an, a, a contract employee with uh, Douglas County Economic Development Council. And we had asked Mr. the, the, the primary reason for um, asking Rob to join us is to help shed light on, to help us understand the, the nature of development work that might be coming from the Panasonic project. What things in terms of you know, increased volume of normal things, what kind of different kinds of things might be there. Just help us understand what might be coming down the road at us, not for the purpose of leaning one direction or another on, on a land use decision we might make in the future, but just give us an understanding of the kind of things that might be coming. And then secondarily, um, from his position as uh, with his background as a developer, his background um, in uh, um, planning work himself, and also as a representative of our community's economic development body, what asks they might have of us as we work forward. So, just like to make this uh, an open dialogue. And, uh, Rob, I'll turn it over to you. Thank you, Gary. Uh, like Gary said, my name is Rob Richardson. Um, a little bit about my background. Um, <clears throat> I'm a planner by background. I went to KU uh, a long time ago. And I spent the last about 20 years as a planning director in one place or another, most of it in KCK. And then the last couple of years, I was in charge of the development process uh, really to keep everybody happy. Um, so whenever a problem arose, I got to be the fixer for the problems that arose in the development process. So that was very rewarding, actually. It's a lot better than being the planning director because then you get to be the yes guy and not the no guy. Sorry, Jeff. There, there's better things in the future. Um, uh, but uh, you know, during the course of that time, uh, representing private developers or working with private developers, um, I gained a lot of perspective on the development process, and I always thought I kind of wanted to be a developer and um, have done some family stuff, my, really minor family stuff, but uh, last October I started my own company so I could um, move to the private side again and do some of my own development work. Um, but I'll tell you one little story about uh, why I have waited so long to get into development. and. Uh, 
back in the early 90s when I worked for a law firm, we were representing a developer, and they were doing the first, well, actually, this was the second TIF project in Independence. So it's the theater project north of, Indi of um, Independence Center, if you know where that is. And it's a 30-acre project, 330,000 square feet, 85% of at least to national tenants for 15 years, $25 million project, $12.5 million TIF incentive. So after the project, the developer and their attorney took my wife and I to dinner at a nice place on the plaza just to say thank you. And I asked him, I said, so when you see this project coming together, it's a $25 million project, half of it's coming from the city, it's leased five years beyond what your debt's going to be. Why don't you tell Homart, which at the time was the nation's, maybe the world's biggest retail developer, see you later and put that together for yourself. He's like, you know, Rob, that looks like a really good project. It's the best or the second best project pro forma and project I've ever seen. I would never risk my family's future on that project. <laughs> So when, um, wow. yeah, that's, that's what, I mean, that, and so there were, uh, there was a time when I worked for the law firm when I almost bought three acres to develop myself, um, just trying to get my own, a lot for me out of it. Um, in 2012, I almost left the city to start doing my own development work and these things keep coming back. Well now, um, I'm older, the kids are gone, you know, and, and there's a little more cash available to do things. So, you know, you know, doing it without debt seems like less risky to me. Um, it's just how long do you wait for your interest, right? So, you know, there's a lot of things in the development world that are, um, that you don't see. Um, so we're doing our first, my partnership I'm in, we're doing our first project and, you know, it's, it's a small, it's under five acres, um, but just to get through the property purchase, get plans drawn, get it submitted, you know, you're about a year to get to preliminary approval before you, you know, start spending real money on hard construction plans. But you know, your carry cost on that little project is probably somewhere in the neighborhood of $200,000. And so when you look at where you're gonna spend that money and how you're gonna spend that money, there's an opportunity cost there, right? Because you can go somewhere where you can do that and you know the city time of that project is three to eight months or you can go somewhere where it takes longer, but you're paying interest on that money. And so there's a cost to that. And how long do you, um, how long are you willing to wait for that? What is, the, what is the reward for having that money out there and what's the risk and what does that do to your internal rates of return on your pro forma? And so those are all things that people consider when they go into projects. Um, I do a lot of scouting work, so I spent 10 days at Bartle uh, with a, one of the city's leading development attorneys who's on our commissioner team. And um, he, he said that, you know, when I have clients come in from out of town and they want to do something in a certain very large city in our metro area, like I say, if you can do it anywhere else, do it, do it, there, do it somewhere else because it just takes too long. You know, whether it's the public process or the internal review of the plans by the staff, it just takes too long. And, there, and you know, if you can go three miles away and do the same thing, you're going to be up and running a lot faster. And so these are things that I hear. And, you know, as planning directors, I'm sure Jeff gets, I mean, we took too long. You're taking too long. Why, you know, that rule's done, whatever. Well, part of what I look at it is that, and this goes back to being a consultant. Every, every time we did any work for somebody, we would say, well, the first thing we had to do is read the code that we're gonna be dealing with, right? 
I don't think enough people do that anymore because you have to know what you're submitting to. And you, ha I mean, if you submit a set of plans to the city that don't meet their code, well, you should expect that you're not going to have a very happy or fun process in that because they're going to tell you that at some point. Why wait for them to tell you if you already know? And just, you know, if you don't like that rule, apply for a variance, go somewhere else. It's a free country. You can go spend your money wherever you want, right? So, you know, there's a lot of things in the process that when you look to, as a developer, who are you going to employ to do your plans? What are they going to do? What is their job? Why are they submitting something that doesn't meet the rules? I mean, sometimes there's honest mistakes, right? I mean, you know, I've been a planning director. I have clients in my former city, and sometimes the new planning director and I don't read the same rule the same way. I resist saying, well, I wrote that. <laughs> I know what the intent was. But, you know, there, there's still things like that in the development process. So there's, no, there's really no surety in that. And I say that because when you all have people come before you and they might be a very wealthy person, um, there's still a risk involved in that. And so when we've gone to private equity to say, what would you, how would you um, do a deal with us to buy our product? They said, well, if you want the money up front, it's a 20% IRR. If you want to build it, fill it up and then sell it to us, it's a 15% IRR. And that's what they have to get for their sale price. And it's interesting because I always thought, well, I mean, well, I'm trying to make that kind of money. Well, you can't both do that, right? So you got to figure all this, all the numbers out to make that work. But I heard something yesterday that kind of made me understand this. So there are many millionaires made in real estate and probably more millionaires made in real estate than anything else in the U.S. The billionaires are all made in private equity money. You know why? Because they get 20%. You know, your money doubles every three and a half years, I think, if you make 20% interest. So it's easy to turn the zeros when you do that. But there's also a risk involved. Um, during the recession in KCK, there's one subdivision I'm not sure about, but every other subdivision went back to the bank but one, and that one didn't go back to the bank because the developer traded everything else to keep that one. And that was a story everywhere in the metro area, but some Johnson County communities. And then when we started coming out of the recession, there were offers on, you know, so say before the recession, you had thirty-five or $40,000 in a lot to develop that lot. They were being fire sold for $3,500 to $5,000 a lot <laughs> later in the recession. <clears throat> Just to get them, just to get them off the bank books, right? You know, they'll take, they'll eat the loss and get them off the book and start again. So there's a lot of risk in that. Um, and so that's kind of the lens that I view stuff with. And and you know, I like, I've I've worked with a lot of the big developers in Kansas City, the ones that you know, you know their names. They make a lot of money. They do a lot of projects. And you would perceive them to be very wealthy people, but when you look at the analysis that they do on each project. You know, right now you can get 4.75% high yield uh, savings account money on the internet, right, from one of the internet banks. So that's, if you can do that with your money and that's safe, it's FDIC insured, you know, what what do you have to make to spend the risk? And that's where these people come up with, you know, the higher interest rates and the higher rates of return that they need to make. And that's why they'll say, well, I can't do that project. You know, that's not worth, it's not worth the risk because all these projects have risk. And we, you know, I think from the 
mid eighties through 2007 development was pretty easy and pretty good. And people were blowing and going and everybody thought they could make money at it. And then the recession happened and everybody's kind of put the brakes on and really looked at what is the risk again. So let's talk about Panasonic. Yeah. yeah play, just as you close out of that, um, I think it's good to understand the developer's perspective. Um, one of the things that we have to, as a planning commission, keep separate <clears throat> is any individual benefit risk calculation that they might be having. You know, as members of the community, it's it's nice to know that, but we have to keep that separate from just right. the land use decision and then through the lens of decision-making criteria that's there. Um, so maybe not right now, but at some point I'd love to, I don't want to keep us away from Panasonic, but I'd love to understand if um, how the decision-making criteria that we use to make those yes or no decisions, which absolutely has nothing, you know, there's no part of it that, that calculates uh, an investor's risk. Right. <clears throat> if those items make sense historically to you and, and uh, if, if there should be improvements, what those should be. Okay. So... So Panasonic's happening. I mean, I know like this time last summer, people had been announced, but people weren't really sure. Well, the pad is complete for the building. The steel's going up. They're trying very hard to get it to where they can enclose they it. There's a lot of cement out there. A lot. Yeah. yeah. Um, you know, they're, they're still doing some final grading things, but the grading's mostly done. So they're putting up steel and getting, you know, doing that. Um, they've hired somewhere probably between 30 and 90 people so far. They're you know, they're higher level folks for the factory. Um, they won't start really hiring, you know, they'll, they'll probably hire somewhere under a thousand in the next 12 months. And then they will hire the 3000, you know, kind of line employee technician workers and things probably starting in October of 24 based on their current plan. And that'll take them, you know, probably 12 to 18, maybe a little bit longer months to, um, hire all those folks. Um, when, and this is just Rob's perception, and I think the perception of the EDC, when people heard they were building better batteries for Tesla, they, I think we all thought they were building a Tesla battery pack. And they're really just building the 25, 70, 25 millimeters wide, 70 millimeters tall. Looks like a big double A. It looks like a big double A battery, but they're building a, they will build more than a billion of them a year out of that plant when it's fully operational. Staggering. Um, and so where we thought there would be a battery pack that had, you know, 100, 200 components to it. It has seven to nine. It has a top and a bottom. It has a case. It has a tab that connects the top and the bottom, and it has an anode and a cathode paper inside of it. So, you say simple. It's not very simple. The chemical makeup of the anode and cathode are very important, and you know the precision of this is is very important. Um, but this the number of other suppliers that are coming in directly for this is probably not in the 60 or 70 range like we thought. It's in the tens. You know, it's not in the hundreds, it's in the tens. Um, but we're on the map now. So if you Google anything related to automotive EV battery, we show up. We are on the map as a under construction facility and um, that gets people's attention. Uh, there are, um, yeah, obviously in Michigan, there's 
a lot of EV work going on, Kentucky, Tennessee, Georgia. Um, we have this one in Kansas. There's likely going to be one in Oklahoma. There's one in Texas, obviously Nevada, Tucson. Um, so they're, they're kind of popping up all around. But people understand that from a work, workforce perspective, there's a, there's a turnover. And we have a, a large industrial base in Kansas City metro area already. But this will help that base. And if people leave the Panasonic plant, they're going to be highly trained industrial workers. And that is going to be an incredible asset for us over time as a community to have that base of industrial knowledge here um, that will help grow other industries. And we have had other people come in already uh, that are uh, support folks for Panasonic looking for um, space in Lawrence. Um, I don't think any of that's signed yet. I don't think anybody's made a big decision. I think the only outside the plant big decision that, that's been made is they're going to build their own 500,000 square foot warehouse. And I don't know if they've decided where to build that or not, but we, I think that's been done. I just haven't heard of the final location on that. But that'll be real close to the plant. It'll either be in Flint or uh, in Astra or some, somewhere very close for that back and forth uh, work there. Um, but they. So there's 4,000 jobs in Panasonic. They're projecting another 4,000 ancillary jobs just to support that plant. Um, and we don't know what those are yet. Um, we're, you know, they're very hyper-focused on construction right now and hiring an executive team. And as they get into what their actual, you know, they have a good idea about what their needs are, but they haven't said we need 15 industrial engineers with the ability to, you know, keep a production line going. We, we don't know that level of detail yet, but at some point we will know that and help them do that. Uh, we are actively marketing our, our Douglas County communities. So I work for the Douglas County Economic Development Corporation. So we represent Douglas County, Lawrence, the Compton, Eudora, Baldwin City. And um, we are actively trying to make sure that folks that are coming into town for the factory know that we are an option. Um, one of our fears uh, as we started this was that if somebody came in, you know, one of the 12 to 1600 people that might come in to work in that initial 4,000, they come into Kansas City, they interview in Johnson County, they get a Johnson County realtor, and they don't even know Douglas County exists. We want to make sure they know that we exist and to ask, hey, what about that college town? What about what about the small town of the city? Or I want to live in a really small community like LeCompton or I just I don't want I want to be a little farther out I want to be in Eudora not DeSoto or Olathe you know so we want to make sure that they at least know to ask those questions and that we have good schools and we have great culture and you know Lawrence is a cool place to be um, which it is um, everybody likes to come to Lawrence even those of us that live in the city um, and so we we're doing a lot of LinkedIn marketing right now um, mm. we uh, we were going to hire somebody to do that, but it's very expensive to do that, thousands of dollars a month. So I watch lots of YouTube videos, and so now I'm kind of a YouTube expert on the very intro phases of LinkedIn marketing. But you, we have gone through and said, these are the areas of the country we want to focus on. So if you have an EV battery plant in your community, we, we want to talk to your people if they're willing to relocate, if they're a job seeker, and if they're interested in EV technology and some of the related things on that. So you can pick all that out. There's about 560,000 people in our target group. And 
we get somewhere about like 10,000-ish impressions a day and 50 to 200 clicks mm. a day. And if they click, they come to the EDC website where we have stuff on each of the four communities. The Board of Realtors, Home Builders Association, school districts, you know, all, all the things you would think of, you know, city websites, all the things you would think of when you um, come in. So we want them, we want to make sure they know that they can come here because, you know, Lawrence is 10-ish percent of the metro area. Um, so we want to make sure that we get our, our yeah. share of that. Yeah. And since it's so close, hopefully we get a little bit more. Uh, and so we're, we're doing those active marketing steps for that. Um, all the industrial related stuff will probably come through Commerce or KCADC. And so, you know, Steve Kelly, he follows that. Um, the ones that have come into town, we did not know were Panasonic related until they got here. They don't announce that coming into town. They just say, you know, once they get here, they start telling you what they're doing. You're like, oh, this is a Panasonic project. Um, so it's been a little hard, you know, even to find their, who their suppliers really are is not an easy task. Um, and so we, you know, Gary and I went to Reno to kind of look into this a few months ago and to the point where like, oh, that business over there might be related. Let's go knock on their door <laughs> and leave a card. Um, and I don't know, we did that to 30 or 40 different businesses, it seems like. And only one of them gave away that they were probably with Panasonic. One lady smiled a little too big. The other ones were very stoic. What are you doing here? Thank you. Goodbye. Um, so it, it, that part of it's been very challenging, but we keep to working to try and find new ways to get in and understand what those people want, what they need, what their needs are, so that we can say that this is how we can serve those needs in Douglas County. Um, as far as Lawrence goes, you know, um, in Lawrence Venture Park, there's some land left. It has hair on it. Um, for the most part for environmental remediation. Uh, you might have noticed in the CIP there's a lot of money in there for environmental remediation at Lawrence Venture Park um, to help make that land more usable both for MSO and for future industrial development, uh, which is very good. Um, but essentially you could have one business come in and, and then you're out of, you're substantially out of big, big lots. So we are actively looking uh, <coughs> how and where we would go about developing another industrial park in terms of location, access, utilities. Um, because as you all know, um, utilities kind of end um, at the current development. And some of them aren't adequate to extend uh, yet. And so we are looking at, at the opportunities to where, you know, it's kind of like not really any different than what a private developer would do. What's our cost per square foot to develop industrial land here, 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 here? You know, and that includes access, water, sewer, other utilities to make that happen. So we're, we're looking at those things and we're working with city administration, county administration uh, as we need to on, the, on those different projects. Um, I've spent quite a bit of time on housing and um, the development market and what would it what do we need to do to make it um, so that people can build homes in Lawrence for existing and new residents? Um, the uh, property value increases um, have kind of made that discussion pretty easy. You know, you all know what your properties went up last year. Rent went up $300 a month in Lawrence last year. And if you if you watched the CIP or the budget presentation last night on homelessness and and there was a lot of talk about homelessness and affordable housing, 
and how many people are on the margin or paying more than 30% uh, of their income as rent. On those margins, if your rent went up 300 bucks, you're, you're over, you know? I mean, that's, you're making decisions and some of those people would be making decisions about the quality of the food they eat, if they eat, you know, their health care and other things like that. So it, it's very important um, to make sure that we allow the housing market to function in a somewhat normal fashion, and it just isn't right now. There's there's no new construction in the market. You know, last year we built, I just think, just under 75 homes, just under 80 or just under 75. And I would say a normal market would be 200-ish. The good markets were a little over 300 um, new homes. And, you know, it can't just be one subdivision because that's one price point maybe two, one style, maybe two. Um, to have a healthy market, you need housing coming on the market, multiple price ranges, multiple styles, multiple locations, so that there's a choice. And when you have the choice in the market, then the, the demand levels out and you have a more normal pricing uh, structure in the market. And so we worked with um, Melissa and Craig, and uh, Jeff helped a lot in this analysis, I think, to um, See what does it take to really extend utilities? Where does it make sense? Where is there, you know, this is something I've never seen in any other city in such a degree, people that just won't sell. I mean, and, and your your limits, you're limited of where you can go because of floodplain to the south, and then what people will or will not sell. We've had people that were not willing to sell a piece of property in a city before, but there was always other alternatives, right? Um, the alternatives here are much uh, fewer in number, and so we, we kind of took those things into consideration. And getting utilities across the SLT, which is, you know, there's a lot of ways to fund that, but typically those are all, when you cross a major piece of federal right-of-way, that's usually a city job. Um, Do you anticipate that there'll be more requests for annexation? Yes. Jeff can correct me if I'm wrong. I think you've done three annexations recently. Um, one at Iowa and the SLT, the Garber annexation, and then there was another one that was more still in the north, but that one had all the, it's kind of in between stuff and it's just connecting streets and utilities yeah. and everything was there for that. Did I get that right, Jeff? Yeah, I think that if I remember right, it's been four, but effectively three. And the capacity of what it works at. And then about last five, you take out a couple of years where there was no annexations, about three to five annexations for years, about generally on par with where everything tends to line up. And that's about what? It was 500 to 700 houses. Uh, I believe when they, they rezoned on that one and just, just, I know the commission knows this, but for anyone watching, their annexation does not automatically mean that a project will move forward. So they may annex, but it doesn't require them to immediately go to permitting or platting. That land can be annexed for some time before it actually works. I think a great example is a piece of land that was annexed in the early 70s, and the city is still sitting there as a farm field. So doesn't, nothing annexation doesn't compel a development application immediately. What was the north? I forgot the Iowa and the Garber. What was the one in the north? There was one that was um, generally between Folks Road and Blazing Star Drive that is right along I-70. Okay. And then the other one was between, um, it's on 902 Road, but it's effectively between K-10 and about a half mile in just north of Rock Chalk Park in the north area. Just 
trying to trigger my memory. Straight north of yeah, Monterey, straight north of 70 and, and going mm -hmm. west. And there's the one that had that um, Alden-LeCompton 10-acre um, set aside as the public benefit. Yes. That ring a bell? Yep. Yes, yeah. it does. Thank you. So, you know, all that to say that um, to poise a city to grow in a responsible way, you know, you don't want to go out two miles and build a dense subdivision. You want your next subdivision to be right next to the last one. You know, sprawl is, if you think about it in great big terms, growing in Gardner before we had grown to Gardner was sprawl, right? I mean, because there, and there's still gaps between the metro area and Gardner, but, you know, Gardner growth or um, something like, or in Kearney, you know, if you go to the Missouri side, you know, we haven't grown to Liberty yet. You go past Liberty another five miles out and then you grow. That those are those are things that are sprawling. When you're right next to existing development, you're doing that next extension and preparing for that next ne next wave. That's not really sprawl. Um, you want to do it responsibly. I think one of the great things that the recent economy has done for uh, communities is that you know when I started in this business, probably eighty percent of all of the housing that was built was single family on seventy-five foot or wider lots and 20% was attached or multifamily. And I think those numbers are probably gonna flip-flop and stay that way just because of the cost of housing um, and what people can afford to buy. So what does that mean? That means you're gonna have more dense housing in the new development. So you, you'll probably be more dense as you go to the, your next phase than you were in your, you know, so if you do it, your next, say, 100 acres of development will probably be more intense than your last 100 acres on the edge because of, of those, you know, just the economy and the way things have happened. But that means that you'll have more value per acre for taxation that will mean that it's easier to afford to maintain those things over time, which I know is something that the city rightfully is concerned about. Um, how, how does it pay for itself long term? Um, and you're kind of in a catch-22 because if, if you don't grow, then you start hurting the people that you don't want to hurt in the lower income tier and how, do they, how are they housed and how do they spend their dollar for housing, food, medicine, those kind of things. Um, but you do want to grow responsibly and I think that, you know, growing out and, and doing the next connection where you have you gotta go to where somebody will sell the land you know so you may have a, a couple of spots in between that don't get developed just because somebody won't sell but their children will um that that's how that happens um and i've been in it long enough to see, see some kids sell those pieces of land that will never be sold um but that's um I think the city's in a good spot with the way the CIP is written to poise you to be able to have multiple developments available and multiple options and meet your current market and meet the additional market from any from anyone from Panasonic. So, and Panasonic might be a 10% bump on a new year on a, on a general year of Lawrence development in a normal economy. Maybe it's 15, maybe it's 20 if you get really if we do a really good job on this. It's not going to be like 200 a year. It'll be in the 20 to 50, and some of them buy existing homes. Some of them will want to live downtown. Some of them want a historic house. Some of them will just want to be in Lawrence. You know, some of them will want to be on a golf course, whatever. The, the, they'll all make those decisions as they come in, but it will enhance your market almost assuredly. Um, but it's not going to be, you know, 200 a year for five years or something like that. Um, but as the Astra Park grows, as Flint grows, 
as LVP fills up, I mean, there's going to be a steady in increase in this. This is one of the biggest manufacturing upticks in, uh, since the Industrial Revolution, really, uh, for the United States. We've sent everything overseas for so long, and the recession's taught us to bring that back. And so there's a lot of manufacturing business coming. And it doesn't look this, I think April was the biggest growth month in a very, very long, in decades. And so um, that they don't see that really slowing down much, even with the economy, you know, with higher interest rates and things. Any questions on that? That's kind of the Panasonic stuff. You know, what you, you know, there might be, one of the interesting things about Panasonic that I, I like is that um, they require their suppliers to be green. I mean, very green, the greenest. Um, that's why you'll, you know, you'll see people doing lithium recycling, cobalt, nickel recycling, and they're not doing it with heat. They're doing it with water and recyclable chemicals so that there isn't a waste stream that comes out of the recycling process. They recycle and reuse everything. Um, and that's, you know, number one, you can't, you can't use heat to refine lithium because it burns up. Um, so you, you have to have another process to do that, and we have to be able to recycle lithium to meet the demand that we have in the country. So I, I think that's a good thing. So you're going to see, you might see some really interesting industrial projects that you think, wow, that they'll be, you know, Panasonic requires their suppliers to be green, so they'll, they will be very environmentally friendly folks when they come in. Um, any questions on the Panasonic issues? Is, is there any expected or have you learned more about um, other businesses, not necessarily direct suppliers to Panasonic, but other players in the industry, other EV manufacturers as an example. 8,500 acres out there, um, there's room for more. Yes, there is. Um, there are no details on that yet, but um, there's definitely talk of a potential second plant, whether it's automotive, uh, car manufacturer, battery manufacturer, and that's certainly something that people have been talking about, which would probably be another 4,000 jobs with another 4,000 ancillary jobs that go along with that. And each one of those has its own, if you just take the stats on Panasonic, brings its own <coughs> addition. Right. Um, and this is, you know, the Panasonic plant is huge. It's on 300 acres or something like that. The <laughs> It's 5% of the Astra Industrial Park. So as big as it is, at the end of the day. Potential is just yeah. to become one of the country's most significant industrial developments. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah, I mean, that's it. I don't know the area of that compared to the industrial park outside of Reno, which is very, uh, if you all don't know, you got to drive 17 miles across BLM land on interstate to get to this big industrial park. It's really odd, and then you're in the middle of nowhere, and then there's, you know, there's like what one convenience store <laughs> and gas station out there, and a couple of hotels, and not much else. You know, people drive from Reno every day, or they get bust from Reno every day to do that. Um, so th they like this area because we're there's a lot of access. It's not a single point access. There's a metro area to serve it, and we have, you know. One of the reasons Fairfax still has a uh, General Motors plan is just the work ethic that we have in this area, and and that is something that people value, um, and will and get to value more over time. 
um, that we are you know Midwestern hardworking people, and, and there is a significant value to that in the workplace. I won't make any more comment on that, but we've all we've all seen some of those issues where and coworkers and our kids' friends and things like that that make that a very important thing to someone uh, making a location decision. And uh, the state's been very generous on the incentive side. Is anyone anticipating any increased requests to, for commercial development, not industrial, but commercial development along the K-10 corridor? Yeah. I, it's interesting because you know, the retail market, I think, is still in a tremendous amount of flux. Um, the amount of things that we buy by 30 seconds like this that we don't get to spend a 30 minutes in the car in the store to go, go to anymore, um, I don't know how that's going to work long term. The office market is um, in, a, in a, the most unusual position it's ever been in. Um, with companies trying to figure out who can, who can uh, and who should be able to work remote. Um, do we have to let them work remote or they'll go somewhere else? Um, you know, and so the demand for office space is in an unusual place at the moment. Um, I had a friend, he was a Sprint employee, but he moved to Minneapolis for another related business when the Sprint layoffs happened. And, they had, I think it was 800,000 square feet in three different buildings in Minneapolis, um, you know, before COVID. Now they have 200,000 square feet of office space and everybody works remote. And they all have, they can all go in, but you don't know what, you just walk in and draw a straw for an open office. And so, I mean, th those things are really uh, <coughs> interesting aspects of the commercial marketplace for commercial development uh, you know what what are the how are the buildings that aren't in use going to get reused how are they uh, going to be backfilled um, it affects the value of those spaces and whether you can even afford to build a new space you know if a law firm wants a new office they're going to go build a new office because they make a lot of money and they can they can go build a new office but if you're trying to figure out if you should you know, if I own a business and I, I need a, a new space, am I going to build a new space or am I going to go take over somebody else's office space so that I can get it, you know, an incredibly cheap rent rate that's a third of what it would be or a quarter of what it would be if I built a new space? There's all that kind of stuff playing in the market right now. And I, I think eventually the answer is yes, but I don't know how long it's going to take us to level out. You know, obviously there's going to be convenience retail. You know, you're going to have your coffee shops and restaurants and dry cleaners and what, whatever else goes along with um, a new area developing, but will there be you know, new office buildings and things? Uh, it's kind of hard to say. You know, there's some, there'll be some specialty built stuff. Even in the industrial sector, the money for spec industrials kind of gone away. Um, for a while, it was, you know, if you had, you, you could build a spec industrial building. And even with the demand in the industrial market, the interest rates and everything else are making, have pulled that money back. And so you really have to have an active project to get a loan to go do that if you don't have private equity just to go do the speculative development. Um, so, I mean, there's a lot of a lot in play there. I wouldn't 
if somebody said, hey, I, I'm going to leave this open for commercial, this corner, and, you know, we may come back and build multifamily on it five years, but we want to leave it open for that opportunity, I would say that's probably reasonable. Um, but I, I'm not making any predictions on the commercial market right now. It's just there's too much wonkiness still coming out of COVID to make predictions on that. Okay. Thanks. I had a question. So uh, you mentioned that uh, one big business in the venture park would fill that space up. So the need for industrial growth area. But what is limiting the growth around the Panasonic plant? Oh, uh, there really you mentioned only a small portion. Well, of there, there isn't, but it's in Johnson County, so we don't get any of that. But I'm just saying, what is limit? What would be limiting putting things there? Um, infrastructure. Mm -hmm. um, electricity. Um, you know, part of their plan is to potentially build a huge 3,000-acre solar farm or something like that. I don't know if that's the right number, but it's it's big. Um, to help um, generate power for those users, um, potentially water supply. Um, but they have, uh, I think, Water One can service whatever water need they have. But um, power needs for some of these big users, even even things that there aren't people in, like the Meta Project in North Kansas City that's the big data center, the power needs of running all those computers and it's just air conditioning and computers are significant we drove by the data center for um tesla out in nevada and yeah, i think it had like eight little mini substations around the building just to run the building i mean if you get in and you zoom in out there and you can go around there's a building it's got like four little if you zoom in they all look like little bitty substations um, so the power needs are on a, you know, millions and millions of square foot building that is generating an incredible amount of heat that has that to be one building. I think was 260 some odd acres under one roof. Yeah. Um, so those are things that could limit that. Um, I guess at some point your roadway network might limit some of that. How many based on how many employees can come in and out, but you know. People learn how to stagger shifts and get their people in and out to, to make all that work in industrial areas. So, I mean, there's not a lot to limit it out there. Well, I was wondering why would they come over here? Oh, well, because, Lawrence, well, Lawrence is cool. <coughs> I mean, if I, if I own the company and I want to live in Lawrence and I don't want to drive very far to work. I might want my business in Lawrence and save myself the 15-minute drive and let my truck drivers drive them. You know? I mean, that's. I mean, there there will be people that. I mean, just like the residential decision, why would you want to live in Lawrence and not somewhere in Johnson County or Kansas City or the crossroads or downtown? It's just, it's what you prefer, what you like, and there will be people that make that decision because uh, they like the location, the land. You know, there's a. Maybe the land is a better deal. Maybe there's some other factor that brings them here. Um, maybe they have more than one client for their service, and it's nice to be close to the plant that's in Astra, but they also need to be closer to I-70. And so this is a happy in-between. Mm -hmm. um, I think there'll be a lot of, um, yeah, there's just a lot of 
things that go into that decision-making matrix, and um, we're going to win some of those. Some of them are going to win just because we're cool. Some of them will win because they like our location. Mm -hmm. yeah, that's, that's the way it is. I think the one thing I'll add to that is you also have a little bit of an inherency with Haskell and KU being here, and sometimes they value the proximity to higher education as part of that, not just you know that someone has th three-phase power and water and utilities, but is that proximity to certain skill sets or certain research that is going on, and that's, that's a bit of a unique factor that we have. We're seeing that at Venture Park, too. Yeah. And I think that, you know, as KUIP matures and become, you'll have people that come out of that that want to stay in Lawrence. They'll start as a one or five person shop in, in, the, in that park and they'll grow and they'll outgrow what they can do there and then they'll want to stay in Lawrence. And, you know, I think you, that's kind of an incubator, so to speak, for those things. So I, there, there's a lot of factors that go into that. And, um, you know, the life of a city is a long life. It's longer than any of ours. And so um, planning for jobs in the future is something that we'll do today. And, you know, I probably won't be employed by the EDC when some of those things happen. But for Lawrence to succeed long term, they need to be there. And we need to plan for that, to have jobs for our people in the future and places for them to be. And who knows what the nature of those jobs will be and you know what that happen what they will be in the future but if we don't have land available for them to come here and, and use as a resource uh, for industrial purposes then we're probably going to lose out so go back to that comment i made about you know the decision criteria that we use it, it doesn't it, again doesn't include benefits or risks of the developer it, it, it doesn't anticipate those things. It, it doesn't include necessarily benefits for the community. It's really strictly about a land use. Well, one of the criteria is related to economic impact to the community. And so that's not the developer's pocketbook, but that what is what do we need to do for the economic health of the community? And, you know, the golden, you all know what the golden factors are, I assume, you know, from... It, um, I don't think it's intended that any one of those outweighs any other. It's looking at them as a whole. And is one of them enough to deny a project? Depending on the severity, it can be. Um, but one of them, likewise, should it just be one of the benefits that causes you to approve a project? Not most of the time, but maybe it can be. Um, and it, it's a balancing act, but economics to the community are definitely a part of what you can consider, what the Kansas Supreme Court said you can consider in, in a zoning case. Um, now, how do you figure that? Is it purely on future tax revenue, or is it a broader scope of the health of the community and the economics of, of the whole community and how it works together? You all have to make that decision up for, you know, make your mind up for yourself. Um, I think that it's easy to say, well, it's gonna bring us in this much tax revenue. I don't know that tax revenue relates to the economic health of the community um, in the way maybe having a place for some, for our community to live and expand or have a jobs expand for job new jobs job growth in our community. The number on tax revenue is not necessarily direct related to the economic benefit of the community as a whole. I mean there is a benefit there, but you know there are some uses that doesn't matter how much tax revenue they pay, 
they may not be good for the community, right? And and so that you know you got to balance that as the way you all see that as a board, but you can use economics, um, and and you really are, I think, in many ways prohibited from asking about um, the finance part of the uh, development. I don't think you should ask if this is if you're going to provide affordable housing, because that is talks about who is going to live there more than it does what the project is. You know, the, the who is going to be there in the future is, is not necessarily, a, unless it's part of the health of the community, right? If you need affordable housing and that's part of the economic health of the community, then you might be able to get to it that way. But I'd, I'd be very hesitant to talk about that. I mean, as planning director, we never asked, you know, sometimes people knew because they'd applied for incentives at the same time, so it's all in the public space, right? But asking what rent is going to be, you know, sometimes, the, I mean, a lot of communities ask that as a way to say, is it high enough to keep those people out? And, you know, there are communities that use that question that way. Um, yeah. So you have to be careful how it's asked, what the intent is, and, and how it will be interpreted when a judge listens to your or watches you on tape, you know, because they do. I mean, they don't even, they don't even depose you anymore. They just look at the tape and see, you know. I could tell by the tone of voice and what that commissioner's um, actions were that they were not taking this seriously and that comment was sarcastic and inappropriate and go back and try again. I mean, so that, that's how they look at those now. So where I, was, where I was going with my comment was maybe a little bit different. Part of, part of what makes Lawrence, Lawrence, Douglas County, Douglas County is the values that we have. Mm -hmm. um, <clears throat> how, we, how we treat rural unincorporated with the, the same, you know, value as we would increase density or you know finding industrial ground mm -hmm. right and making those decisions together so we we lean on our comprehensive plan and our comprehensive plan does provide for specifically provide for housing affordability and leans us towards density for the purpose of you know lowering our costs and in infrastructure so where i was going with my question was with that in mind and our community having needs and community being faced or coming going to be there going to be there will be applicants coming to us how can we help those future applicants understand what those values are understand how this manifests in these the criteria that we're asking people to apply to we we just I'll, I won't speak for anybody else but just for myself I would be reluctant to toss away the plan or the values or whatever because this is such a great project and and, and do something that that is that is outside of what our our rules our processes provide for even if they are maybe a little bit more burdensome than some how can we help those applicants understand that so that they can come in as great partners in the community um one of them is just getting to read the documents you know um as the actual money guy or project lead read those documents, do they understand the city, have their yeah. um, contractors, their engineers, architects, planners, landscape architects, financiers, have they read that, do they understand that, where you're coming from? Uh, I, I think that's a big part of it for, for people to understand where you are as a community. And I also think that, you know, zoning is on paper and it, and it gives you rights based on what your zoning is. The plan is a projected future of that. And the plans, plans can change. Now, I wouldn't change them every day for any reason, 
you know, but there are rational times when it's okay to amend the plan because of whatever benefit a project is going to. And, and I've even had a couple of plans where we were like, you know, we left it as mixed use open on the plan because so many things could go there. And what what is right? So take the land that was immediately west of the Legends. There's 300 acres there. At one time, Lamar had an option on that to move to build a stadium there. He was never going to build a stadium there, but he got half a billion dollars out of the state of Missouri to enhance his existing stadium. Um, there could be apartments there. There could have been additional entertainment. There's a big, wide public right-of-way there. You could change that. And we had data center proposals. I mean, there's all kinds of things that, you know, there, there really wasn't a lot of residential around there. And there wasn't a lot of, there was great road access, great utility access. We wanted a great project there that was great for the city, probably more than we wanted a specific thing there. Um, where the Cerner office buildings are on the east side of the Legends, where the, where the, I guess the Oracle that now are David blocked his bottom, but they were originally Cerner office towers. On the original plan for Village West, those were an office. I went to Europe to ski in indoor ski domes because somebody wanted to build an indoor ski dome there at one point because of the slope and, you know, it's on the way to Colorado and, you know, that didn't happen because you just couldn't make it look very good because it's a big, tall thing on ugly stilts and it, it just didn't meet the look that we wanted for that area. So, I mean, there's a lot of times where some, you can have an area that you could have a great project there. You don't really need to super define it up front, but, you know, if you're next to a, you know, you've got a half a mile of development and you've got 75 foot lots lined up there. Well, that, that does set a different tone, right? You can't go build a lot of things right next to that without some kind of buffering or, and you know, what I would tell people if they want to do residential next to it, you know, everybody wants to do more density. You know, so if they've got an 88 acre project, they've got a bunch of 75 or 100 foot lots here and they want 300 units here, but they put 150 units along here. Well, those people are, you, you've been in planning commission meetings long enough. I don't want some of those people to have three, three backdoor neighbors instead of one, right? Most people, if you lined up and matched lot line to lot line there, they don't care what happens on the other side of the street. As long as it tears up. I said, if you wanted 300 units, but you're going to do 150 here, do 400 units and only do 75 here, nobody will blink and you'll get your project approved. You know, there's ways to make those things work and how you do a project and how you do density and how you do buffering to make um, a lot of projects work that may not fit everything exactly, but you can work with them and the staff can work with them to get you something that meets the intent of what the original plan was and allows you to develop a great project that might not have been thought of yet. I mean, we were going to have land uses that aren't in your current, aren't in the zoning code you're writing now. You know, that, that happens. And, and you're going to have to deal with those. And where do those fit in your plan? Um, those are, you know, very interesting um, dilemmas for a staff. Because Jeff sees that. And, he, and sometimes he'll see, if it's a big enough project, he'll see it in a meeting with Craig. And Craig will look at Jeff and Jeff's like, Oh, it looks like this is something everybody wants to do, but it doesn't quite fit the plan. What do we do, right? And so then you got to work with you all to 
figure out if it can work or not. And, and I think that the, the critical thing for the development community is uh, will you entertain that? I mean, we'd be nice about it. I mean, you can have a, a you can be, you, you can disagree and not have something done and people feel like they were given a fair shake and, and you can have them feel differently than that. And so I, I think, you know, an effective development process is predictable. It means you know that, you know, it's going to happen this way. It's fair. Um, and, you know, those are very hard things to come by uh, in any city. But if you have a fair, predictable process, uh, so if it's planned single family, it's zoned single, you know, if it's planned single family, I can zone it to something within the plan that meets that and I can get that development approved. I can do that in a reasonable time frame and get a reasonable result. That's a good process that's predictable that people will want to follow. If you have people coming in and it's planned for residential and you say no to the zoning that complies with your plan after you know a year of debate, that, that will drive people away because that doesn't make, you know, there's a lot of risk in the money, and you know if you don't, if you, don't, I wouldn't put something in your plan you don't intend to follow through with zoning. That, that makes it hard, and it, you know, not, don't go, don't go to tier three of the plan. You know, if it's tier one, it's close. I mean, those kind of things. Yeah, I would. I, I so I um, I find this conversation very interesting. Thank you for coming. It's been very enlightening. Um, a couple of things. I think Gary mentioned. Excuse me. Um, I'm interested in. First of all, I loved your comment about I don't think people read anymore. I'm a professor and all I have been saying that now for a couple of years. Like, read, please just read the syllabus, right? Read the documents. And so, in some respects, so that we don't have any control over that, right? If somebody has come, like that fairness that you're talking about, some of that has to do with like, how people's, what people's impressions were and what work they, they did that was really on them to do. Um, to be prepared, but I'm really interested in like what your um, office is doing um, to think about the value set. So you've mentioned a couple times that like Lawrence is cool, um, and I agree with you, right? I, I worked in Kansas City for a long time and always maintained a house here and made that decision because Lawrence has been my community for 30 years now, and I just had that feel and I've tried to go away for other job opportunities and it's like nope Lawrence is cool right so my value set and so I think the value set is really important and um, so I'm just interested in how you think about that or how developers should think about that and it's very easy to think well Douglas County or Lawrence is hard to work with because they have more um, rules in place or more procedure in place. But a lot of that has been really systematic over decades in order to make sure that the value set of the community changes with the time but also stays where we want it, right? And, and there's just a lot of, of values out there. And so it's interesting to me to think about when you're looking at these things, I do find like Plan 2020 to be really important I find what the neighbors say and come and talk about to be really important. And so in, in your aspect of planning and helping people think about what our community is and being consistent with those values, like how do you approach that and how do you guys think about 
because my understanding, I have to defer to staff, but my understanding is, you know, Plan 2020 comes out of surveys of the community that people have spoken about the kinds of things and the value set that open space, right? And like a lot of important things are in there. So I don't hear that as much when you're talking about the economic development sure. and the working with, with people and the things that we should be considering. So what would be your take on that? And, you know, where, where do we go? So I'm very much a neighborhood guy. I live in a historic house in a historic neighborhood. And um, when Professor Rockhill wanted to build one of his shoeboxes in my neighborhood, I protested. So, um, you know, that's, um, I, I get that. And when I wrote our zoning procedures in 2004, we had neighborhood meetings and uh, they were required for our development. So, I mean, we value open space and, and I, th I think that the, none of that is bad. And I think developers should inherently want to do neighborhood meetings. They should inherently be able to be a little bit flexible in what they're doing. Um, you know, my thought was that if, if I read the neighborhood meeting notes and then I come to the meeting and I see what the developer says, well, these were the 15 comments that they made. This is how I addressed the 11 of those in, com in complete fashion. 12 and 13, we kind of did this instead. 14 and 15, we just couldn't do. That seems like a good compromise. And it, provided 14 and 15 weren't you know, nuclear bombs, right? So that, that I think there's got to be some give and take on that. And what I found was that um, if the neighborhood was irrational, um, the commissions would listen to that a little bit, and then they would approve the development. You know, and I, and I, I've, you know, I think that the community values are really important there, and how and how they get manifested. Um, one of the things I've heard about Lawrence is that the public process is rude, and inconsiderate, and impolite. I haven't witnessed that. I've been told that a lot, but um, there's not really a need for that. You don't need to cuss somebody out just because you don't agree with them. I mean, that's, you know, leave that for Facebook, I guess. I haven't experienced that either. Um, and so, I, and that's why I said, I, I hear things and I'm, I, you know, I was here in grad school, I've observed from afar, I'm, I'm back. So, um, but that's, if that's a perception, then, you know, it's probably something to be worked on. Um, how are, how is people's time valued? Um, I love that you get to hear people speak at, at commission meetings. Um, I, I would probably do the business that's on the agenda before I heard people speak because there's, you know, that's the business. You got to hear them, but if people are there for an agenda item that's part of the real business of the, of the board, it would be polite to hear that first. Not that the other isn't important, but it's an agendized yeah. business item. It's just polite to hear that before we go into, you know, hear comments about things that aren't on the agenda. Other city, you know, it's just how your city operates and how you value that. You, you can't throw away your value system, right? But at some point, if your value system starts to have conflicts, like, you know, Lawrence is very concerned about folks that are unhoused. Rightfully so, more than any other community in the metro area, by a long shot. And that's not—that's a great thing because, you know, the, we need to protect the weakest members of our community because they're part of the chain, right? And if the chain breaks, that you know, we all suffer. 
where does the you know there's a there's a scale there about how and you got to decide that but it's something that when it's in your plan and you point to the plan and you say these are the values is it is it clear or is it vague so one of the big points in plan 2040 is the community benefit that is vague vagueness is something that the supreme court doesn't like okay i mean that's just a fact if you want a community benefit define what it is and I mean, recently it's been housing. I mean, that's been the way the staff and um, has written it, and I think you all have, have followed that. That's great, but it really needs to be in writing. Vagueness is something that um, leads to misinterpretations and people upset on both sides. Um, if it's if the rule is written clear, if you have to have a stream buffer of X, stream buffer of X, it's there or it's not. You either apply for a variance or you do it. When it's straightforward and you can read the rule and you can do it, then I think your community values are are very clearly expressed and you can uh, expect those to be implement, implemented. Some of our social values nationally are very hard to express without being vague. And I, I think that's where people struggle in every community um, to express what those values really are. Is it? And, and there'll be different depending on where you are in the country. You know, we don't worry about water very much here. My friends in Phoenix and Tucson worry about water a lot. And, you know, just what are, what are your values and how do you express them? But you have to be able to express them clearly and succinctly in a way that an outsider can come in and read them and under, understand them. And that, I just use that one that's a lightning rod I know, but that's that's one you know, yes, we want the community to benefit from this development. Tell me, if you tell me, if you give me the puzzle to solve, I'll solve the puzzle. But when the puzzle is an amoeba and it moves, I can never solve the puzzle. And, that, and that's really, I think, what people are asking for is give them clear pieces to solve the puzzle. And, you know, it used to be, oh, your zoning code is 300 pages long. Well, nobody knows how long it is anymore because it's just on the internet, <laughs> you know. Um, but it should be hyperlinked. If there's a word here that relates to something in a section, you know, 100 pages away, I ought to be able to hyperlink between them and then go back quickly and easily. It ought, the hyperlinks ought to work, you know, your code ought to work so that I can understand it and that if there's something in this part of the code that relates to part of the code over here, if there's not a hyperlink here, the way it is, I will never find that ever, ever, ever on the internet now, the way you go and read code. So they have to be very, carefully linked together so that um, as if I read, you know, R32 or whatever your code says, and there's a section that relates to how I landscape that over here, if it's not linked here, I might find it because I know I need to look for landscaping. But if it's, you know, I don't know, where I have to hide my trash cans, there's not a link to that. I won't ever find that. And then Jeff's going to, you know, I'll get to Jeff and I'll say, well, you got to put your trash cans here or whatever. You know, so all that stuff has to work together. It's very hard. You've got a good code consultant. Uh, Elizabeth and I were interns at the same law firm a long time ago. So um, I know she does great work. But those are, those are the kind of things that when you are trying to um, make things work efficiently and express your values, Clarity and ease of use are very important. I don't want to stop anything. I've let us run long. Did you? Did you get? Your, oh, 
Yes, that was fine. I just, yeah. yeah I mean, it's, it's, it's how, how you see them fitting together. Mm -hmm. so. yeah, I think it's your values are very important, and I would never tell you to sacrifice your values because I won't sacrifice mine. So, um, yeah. that's, um, but you got to be able to express that very clearly. Anyone else have questions for Rob? I did, but if are we trying to get something else done? No, go ahead. You go ahead. I've got. I don't have to be anywhere. We do have till nine. Okay. okay. Oh, great. 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 Oh, okay. <clears throat> um, just a comment. In, in listening to you talk, you mentioned that community benefit, which is something that's been you know, talked about quite a little. But you, you also talked about, um, let's say, a, a, a developer wanting to have flexibility um, with a site. Um, you know, mixed use. There could be a lot of things that could be there. It could be creative. What's a great project? Um, for the city, but I would argue that the community benefit probably allows that. I mean, in terms of we're waiting for these projects to come in, and do they give a community benefit? And yes, it's, it's not defined specifically, but that's what allows that creativity. You know, when a developer comes to you, like, think about that. What could possibly be a community benefit? So I think in the sense of that being written like that, we're looking for some creativity and some benefit to the community. It might be something we've never thought of. I think you can allow for that, but you can also make things that are specific. Say, these are, these are the things we would specifically allow. You may have another idea, but um, I think you can have both. I think you can be specific in what you think a community benefit would be, and I think you can also leave, you know, mm -hmm. or some other alternative. It's like dumpster screening, right? we would prescribe that you had to have materials that match the main building and had to have doors that closed and X, Y, and Z with a dumpster screen. You know, how you do a dumpster screen, we say, but you can say, or a alternative. And they may come up with something that is completely different and, you know, you never thought of. And maybe it's all done by a berm and they say, you know, it's all, into the landscape it's not directly landscape but it's all hidden another way but there's not really a there's not a wall there's not a you know you would, there's not a wall to it there's not a formal landscaping plan it's just a streetscape kind of covers it but it's not formally done but, you know I, I think that there are ways to say that um, show us your long term you know how, how we're going to maintain this long term and can we do that um, show us X, Y, or Z. And if you have another idea, we're happy to listen to it. But just know that, you know, we may not, if, if I choose as a developer to go with an unknown alternative, then I know that I am putting myself before you and, and you can, you can um, love me and parade me around on your shoulders or you can nail me to the cross. I mean, I, I know that going in. Um, and I might be able to talk to, to Jeff and get a good idea of like, hey, Jeff likes this idea. I like this idea. Between the two of us, maybe we can be persuasive enough to get this done. If Jeff looks at me funny, then I'm probably going to go back and do something else. I mean, you know, and as planning director, you have people ask you, it's like, they ask you, what do you think? Have other people gotten this done? Have other people gotten smacked for doing this. I mean, the, the, there are, they ask a lot of questions of the planning director because there's nobody else in the city that's into development like the planning director is. And so, I mean, I think you can, I, I get that you want the creativity, I think you can allow for that, but um, if 
you deny somebody in the zoning process because of the lack of community benefit and they say I thought this was a community benefit it was vague vagueness is one, something that gets judicial reviews antennas up <coughs> quickly and so that's you know, that's just one of those things just to remind the commission, the community benefit is related to the annexation of property, not to the zoning. So the golden factors are still what you would buy to to the zoning criteria for that part. I was just going to ask a follow-up to that, yeah. but if you had more. Well, so, and, and Jeff's, Jeff's correct. Um, uh, the thing that complicates the, well, I think we just leave with that. Go ahead with your question. So I just wanted to kind of... Um, Get an idea or like a summary of my my takeaway. Um, are you so? What are you saying that um, you feel like, or developers may feel like, there's some issues with the way that, that the zoning code is presented, like online and a variety. It's hard to figure out exactly what what should be be done and whatnot. And there's some ambiguity then built into some of that. Um, or is it a value set? Like to me, it seems like in the um, plan 2040 and a variety of things. I mean, the value sets are pretty clear, right? Now, how we're going to execute them, right? Or what kind of creative solutions may come up to like make the community the community that we're seeking for it to be? Like that's kind of up in the air, like right? But but the value set seems pretty clear to me there. Um, and so I'm just curious as to because I, I get a little bit of a sense of. Um, we're hard to work with. I'm not sure about that 100%, but like Douglas County might be difficult from the developer's perspective. So what do we do then, or what are you saying then is the way that we would um, be able to, uh, to be less that way, but not compromise our values, so, which seem clearly set out to me? Um, I would say that the feeling that Lawrence is hard to work with is not completely universal, but fairly universal. Would that be Lawrence or Douglas County? Are you talking about? Lawrence. Okay. Um, and um, it's very hard to perceive um, how that is compared to other places. Now, a, a lot of it is speed of the process and um, you know, there are, in most of the Johnson County communities, KCK, Lee Summit, Liberty, Independence. If I come in with a master plan amendment, change of zone, preliminary plan, preliminary plat, I should be through that process in four to six months universally and then be ready to do my final plan, final plat. I think that's kind of the standard that when people want to spend their money, you have Lawrence developers that are spending their money in other counties because of that process of, of that just of the timing um, I, I think that you know having people that finding people that agree with your values and want to be here and, and be part of your community is important you know you the guy that wants to come in and make the quick buck you know it's like the roofers after the storm that come in from other states you know that's not the guy you want but you can't really say that um, directly in some forums. Um, 
but you want to you want to be able to develop a cohort of people that want to work in your community that understand it and know how to work work that um, I've had people in communities I worked in that were very successful and they badmouthed us everywhere in the world because they wanted to be the only game in town okay um, we had people that were just not very bright that couldn't figure out the system um, and badmouthed us. We had people that came in, so this is a funny story. The only, um, we had two people that got plans, significant complex construction documents approved on their first try. One of them was from California. You know why? They read the rules, okay? I mean, that's, <laughs> that's very important. Um, and, and we had a lot of people, you know, when, when I managed review as part of my job, I had enough people to do review if we averaged 2.2 reviews per plan set. We averaged 3.2 per plan set, my people worked 60 to 70 hours a week. So it was important to get good plans. And so we, we wrote our rules to force good plans. And then we did good review and we got good plans. And we got down to that two point, I think the lowest we ever got for any period is like 2.1 reviews per plan set. So some of them would be one review, and most of them one review and minor changes and then go back. Um, but brand new people should be able to come in and do it. But I will tell you, zoning is hard. I mean, um, you all are probably, uh, other commission, you know, the top 20 most, in the top 20 most knowledgeable people on zoning in the community, and you probably, and quite frankly, you don't know very much about it, right? I mean, to be honest, I mean, that's it's not your job to know the zoning code. I mean, it was my job to know the KCK zoning code, and I had to go look stuff up every now and then. You know, I would give my staff, you know, there would be like, oh, we haven't had that before. All right, you all, independently, I want everybody to go figure out what you think about that. We'll talk about it and come back. You know, the, it, it's not easy. And when you have a new code, there's going to be a whole lot more of, uh-oh, because you can't go through every, you can do all the scenarios you want in the process. You're not, the first one that comes in is going to be something you never thought of. It's just the way that works. So, you know, you got you to do your best job to be clear, and you've got to understand what, what you want and what they want. And, you know, it's got... There are always going to be people that come in and just say, I'm doing it my way and screw y'all. Either you want it or you don't. But when you find somebody that's like, they see our values, they, they see what we're doing, cultivate that and, and, and keep them coming. Um, and that's hard to find, but I mean, there's enough demand in Lawrence. You're going to find people that want to do that, want to keep doing that and repeat that process. Um, but. Lawrence has a more structured value system than most communities do. And, you know, the, the thing I would say is that um, those are great. They can make you very exclusive. I mean, Boulder was this in the, in the 70s and 80s, right? And now there's, you know, if you're not a college student living in a dorm, you cannot afford to live in Boulder. You have to live a long way away from Boulder. Other cities around on the Front Range are growing fast because people from that work in Boulder live in those cities, right? I mean, that's and it's growing because they have mountains. We don't have mountains, so we don't have to worry about that. Um, but you don't you you want to temper one with the other, right? 
you don't want bad development. You don't want stuff that's going to you're going to regret forever. You don't want to do no development and become so exclusive that people can't be part of your community because part of your value system is the wide spectrum of people in the community, um, from a new artist to you know a professor or somebody that starts up a new business that's going to be the next thing on the internet, whatever that is. You know, and I think those are very hard to play those together right um, because the nice the things that are nice in your value system are also expensive excuse me I have to leave but I appreciate your time this yeah, morning thank you thank for being you. here and I can ramble and talk on a long time so you know you got to stop me <laughs> I think what I hear you say that when to the question is there an ask of uh, uh, the development community predictability consistency yep that's what it comes down to yeah and, and you know that's um, it's, it's hard to achieve and it takes building long-term relationships um, yeah. between consultants and staff and you know as soon as I quit I had people calling me want me to help them right away because they knew that I was willing to work in the system to make things happen within the system and could make that happen in the system because I'd done it for so long and they perceived me as being fair and even if even people that didn't get their developments approved they thought that they they weren't happy about it it cost them a lot of money but they didn't feel like they got an underhand kick in the shorts coming up uh, six minutes before the top of the hour. Um, Mike, Brashant, is it uh, anything from you guys? Any questions or comments? Um, I have a quick one. Uh, Gary, can you guys hear me? Yes. Hey, Rob, thanks for doing this much. I've learned a lot and it's been very informative. Um, so we're in the middle of writing regulations for wind turbines. And I was wondering if you could give us a sense of what you anticipate in terms of energy needs coming down the road. I know you mentioned a 3,000 acre uh, solar farm, I think, for to support Panasonic. A any other any other kinds of, uh, any way for us to gauge what's coming from an energy perspective? Um, I don't think so. Um, you know, I think that there's even maybe a solar farm um, possibly being applied for in, in Douglas County as well. Um, uh, there's talk of a project. There's talk of a project that would do that. Um, you know, wind is an interesting thing to me because it's great for the environment and it ruins the environmental landscape. <laughs> so I have a I have a dilemma um, as an outdoors guy of you know, you know driving across to Iowa. It's kind of you know, Kansas isn't the flat state. It's really Iowa, right? Um, you know, I don't mind it so much there, but when you start driving in the mountains and they're on the ridges of the mountains and stuff, it you know has a different impact. But um, I don't think our energy needs are going to go away. The more we want to reuse batteries, um, the more the more we're going to need energy of one kind or of another or another. Um, I think we're probably all still afraid of nuclear stuff and. Um, even though it's kind of in our backyard, we kind of forget about that. But um, and it doesn't appear that coal will ever be permitted again. So yeah. um, 
we're gonna have to look at other other ways to do it um, as we move forward. So, but I'm not an energy predictor. Sorry, Mr. Kelso. My my only comment, and this goes back some of your, and thank you for coming. I, I agree with almost everything you said, except back to as one of the first things you said when you talked about um, rural and landowners and the people who made the comments like, oh, it's uh, we're never going to sell, we're never going to sell. And then you said, oh, well, it'll get left to a child, to a child and the child will say, okay, it can be sold. I'm going to disagree with that vehemently in this county. Um, uh, as a landowner, and I'm even a first-generation landowner, I'm going to die on my land, I'll tell you that right now. <laughs> but um, uh, to say that land can always be bought, that there's always a price no matter where it's at, I'm going to, I'm going to disagree with that. There's some very, very strong uh, rural families in this county, particularly ones that are pretty close to Lawrence physically um, in their in their location. Uh, and that I married into one of those families and that just uh, through my mother-in-law passing, we've now inherited another 40 acres that's been in my wife's family for four generations. And I can tell you, it's never going anywhere. And, and that's that's the only comment that I'd have. Yeah, there, there are some that are like that. Very few, in my experience. Lawrence may be different. And, and then also, the, I mean, the, the keeping the rural character fits as as has been said here with the 2040 plan so, i mean we value that in this county mm -hmm. at some point in the next few years i'm going to inherit a farm and my dad knows that it's gone hmm. because it's you know 400 acres or well, i guess that my uncle sold his half so 220 230 acres something like that that makes 25 or thirty thousand dollars a year long-term savings account at four and a half percent interest makes more money on that money than that does and you know when you're looking at what you're you know everybody values things differently um, and that's um, your experience and um, is a unique one in the metro area as a whole and there may maybe this is the place where all that is is going to be centered and that will stay that way forever and if it does, you got to plan around that, and you know you all, you know you need to recognize that as in doing your plans. Um, and if that land is put into a trust of some kind where it will be farmland forever, then you know that changes how you plan for that. Yeah. If it's if it's legally in a trust and it's preserved, then you might as well mark that as farmland forever because that's the way it'll be. But that's you know that's not the. Um, And I think we're, we're seeing this as we go through, as Prasant mentioned, the, the rewriting of the Windrex. I mean, we're hearing from the landowners. Yeah, I mean, I, when they offer you $75,000 a year to put a, for five turbines on your farm, it's hard to resist. It is for some. For some. Not for others. For some, not for others. Agreed. Right, and we've, we've heard from both sides of that. Right. The multi-generational families that 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 care for that land um, aren't doing a mm -hmm. savings account. Um, they're not checking their money. That's. I'm not saying that they're that they're oblivious to the economics of it. I, I think they probably are more closely attuned than, than everybody else is. But it's not. It's not the key 
decision right. criteria. And your, your point, though, is, is valid, that where that exists, where that's known, that should be factored into our plans um, and not constantly be looking over to see if somebody's you know, ready to sell. We right. should acknowledge that, maybe. I can just tell you that my grandma would come out of her grave and slap me if I didn't take that contract. <laughs> uh, even if it was right next to the house she was born in that's still in the family. <laughs> So, I mean, there's there's a difference. There's people looking at it differently, right? Yeah, ex ex precisely. And we are out of time. Just on time. Nice job. Just on, just Thank you all for having me and listening to me ramble. Thanks so much for being here and for sharing perspective from a developer's point of view and, and what's coming up with Panasonic. Rob, appreciate you. Thank mm -hmm. you. And we Thank are you. adjourned. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, no problem. Yeah. Nice. Nice to meet you. It was, uh, you know, and... Just as an aside, you know, when I was